I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast about everything for supply chain advantage. So let's begin. In this week's podcast, I want to discuss what it means to have market-driven customer-focused supply chains. You can also read my blog article of the same title at Tony Hines' blog. What does it mean to be market-driven? In the industrial age, it seemed that building capacity to manufacture at scale and developing capabilities to innovate and build better goods than a competitor would be enough. However, one little detail is overlooked, which is we have no mention of customers or the market. This is what came to be known as the inside-out view of the organization, a resource-based view. The alternative, the outside-in perspective, seeks to look at the organization from the customer's vantage point. What does the customer experience tell you? To be market-driven, you need to know what your customers want. You have to identify your customers, who they are, where they are, and what they want, and what they're prepared to pay for. This is referred to as market orientation. Organisations that do this are said to be market-driven. What and why is customer focus necessary? Peter Drucker famously said, it's the customer who determines what a business is. The customer alone is willing to pay for the goods or services. He went further to say it's what customers determine as value. In the age of production, recognising that the customer is at the centre of everything the organisation does may have seemed presumptuous. Many businesses focused on innovation, engineering and management science as a means of searching for wealth. These different foci are of course necessary, but not sufficient, because it's the customer who pays and determines value. It is the customer who determines what the business is, what it produces and whether it will prosper. Supply push or demand pull. Let's just explain these two phrases because it hinges around what we mean by a market-driven customer-focused supply chain. Supply suggests service product push and demand suggests market customer pull. Supply chains only exist if there is demand for the product or service. In the age of selling, suppliers were dominant in the market and they could push products onto their wholesale or retail customers through incentives that would encourage them to stock the item. There was no guarantee of sale. Stockists would benefit from brand advertising by the supplier that motivated customers to visit stores stocking their branded products. It was also an age when retail price maintenance in the United Kingdom was in force. So if you were a stockist, you couldn't undercut a competitor because prices were effectively fixed by the supplier. Most supply systems were push systems in many industries in the latter part of the 20th century. You can think of most manufacturing, including heavy industries such as steel, automobiles and aircraft manufacture, as supply push industries. Remember, this came from the automobile industry. It's what many call Fordism after Henry Ford and his arch cost-efficient engineer, Frederick Wimslow-Taylor, who focused on cost efficiency, redesigning processes to reduce costs by investigating how much work was involved in each of the processes and then trying to cut the time involved in the process so that they could actually save costs. So throughput was the focus of what they were trying to do. They were trying to get things through the factory lines faster 
so that they could save money in production. And this is what brought the mass-manufactured automobile to market. So it was very important to start the process, I suppose, being very focused on cost in that particular way. It's still important, of course, to watch cost. I mean, you can't just let costs go out of control. The mass production car industry manufactured a standardised product at the lowest possible cost, and it kept prices reasonable so that people could afford them. That's very different to today, where customers have a say in how their vehicle is put together. They can effectively customise parts of the production process with the car manufacturer, depending on what they're prepared to pay. So they can vary additions to the vehicle or the, the type of specification that the vehicle is built to. And that's designed into the process. And car manufacturers such as BMW and others are very focused on allowing the customer to do that. It gives a degree of choice which was not available in the past. I mean, Hen Henry Ford famously said that you can have any, any car in any colour you like so long as it's black. And there was only one car on the production line in those days anyway. While production remains important today, this is a market-driven industry. And ultimately, it is the customers who are the prime drivers in the automobile supply chain. In fact, it's the customer that's the prime driver in most supply chains. I'll give you an example from a different industry right now, which is uh, something I'm familiar with from spending some time as a publisher of books. And that's the changes that occurred in the book publishing industry in the latter part of the 20th century. And you can see what happened there. It was essentially one of the last bastions of supply push operated markets where publishers were able to determine the price of the book. You'll notice on many titles um, on your bookshelves, you will have the price stated on the cover. And if it's a more recent book, there'll be a barcode there with a international standard book number, which is basically the, the tracking code that uh, follows that book from its production through to its customer. And it's how people find things, just like a, a tin of baked beans or products in your food cupboard, where you'll find similar sorts of barcodes. But that international standard book number, the ISBN 11, and now the more commonly available ISBN 13, which is the newer standard, is what you'll find on the back of your books. And those international standard book numbers can tell publishers where their books are sold and tell, keep track of how many are sold and so on and so forth. And it can determine the price as well. I mean, you can you can actually use the international standard book number to find a book and you can not necessarily have to print a, a price on the cover because the barcode itself will find the current price of the product. And that's the way books are sold today online with prices adjustable depending on demand. But during the 1980s, UK book publishing fixed the prices from the publisher and the publisher's gave a standard discount to most retail bookstores of 35% trade discount. So that was a fixed margin that the bookseller would get for each book it sold. 
But it underwent quite a big transformation at that time with retail concentration as larger retail chains took over the independent booksellers. And these larger chains, such as Waterstones and Dillons at the time, were focused on essentially purchasing more books in bulk from publishers. They wanted higher discounts from them to do that. And they would then sell them on at prices that they wanted to adjust, not necessarily keep the fixed price that the publisher wanted to set it at, but determine their own profit margins based on volume and profitability measures and return on investment measures that they instigated for their own business. They wanted more control over their business. So they were negotiating better discounts and higher volumes, and the market changed. It was slow at first, but gradually there was a lobby led by these new book chains to overturn what was then called the Net Book Agreement, which was a piece of retail price maintenance, a condition under which books had to be sold. So it was a law. Once it disappeared, book retailers achieved higher margins and had some flexibility over prices that we mentioned. And customers benefited through lower retail prices because they didn't always sell the prices higher than the Net Book price agreed by the publisher. They sold them for lower prices to encourage more people to buy more books. And it was a lot easier, actually, for publishers then to make a single drop of books in volume to one retail chain distribution centre rather than having to distribute them individually to each small bookstore. So it it was an easier arrangement for many of the publishers. And what you have to remember about many book publishers in the United Kingdom and elsewhere indeed, but certainly in the United Kingdom, they were quite small businesses. Even those with big brand names were relatively small organisations with a small number of people employed as editors and production staff and administrative staff who would operate the publishing business. So some of the, you know, the most famous labels, brands in the book world, they would have quite small operations and they'd be classified as small businesses. And even the larger ones would probably be only classified as medium businesses. There were, there were very, very few large global brands. And those that were large global brands were mainly U.S. book publishers. Uh, and, and they grew through acquisition and merger, the largest ones, such as Random House. So this effectively moved a supply push operation run by publishers into a market demand pull operation where customers were given more choice about how they bought the books. Of course, we know what happened to books because towards the end of the 20th century, those chains became more powerful. But very at the very end of the 20th century, a company called Amazon, run by Jeff Bezos, set up an online bookstore, and that's what it was originally, an online bookstore, to compete with all booksellers everywhere. And we know what happened from there. Initially, it was very unprofitable, but... They were reliant on technical services using the internet to sell their books through online, the online store. And they were very, very smart in how they invested in the latest technology to enable them to distribute those books effectively and eventually make profit and become, of course, one of the largest organizations in the world. So that was a customer focus that they brought with 
technological support. Let's turn our attention away from the idea of supply push demand pull and focus more closely on what it means to have a market driven service system. As I stated in my supply chain strategies book, effective supply chains are market driven service systems. The customer is at the center of everything. A supply chain's raison d'etre is the customer. Without the customer, there is no supply chain. The customer-focused supply chain is market-driven. It's demand-pull, not producer-determined. It's not supply-push. And if you think about the things that customers value, they essentially want to know that anyone they buy from is trustworthy and they have a brand and an image, a reputation that they can rely on. They want to know that other people who've bought from them talk well of the company. That's a very important thing because this word of mouth in that business can be quite a motivator for buyers or it can be quite a problem if reputations get tarnished and people don't want to buy from somebody because the word of mouth is not good. So they want to know that suppliers are rated by other customers and they want to know that the supplier provides service and works with customers to meet their needs. Now working with customers to meet that need is particularly important in a business-to-business setting where you have to establish good relationships with the people who are supplying you because you want them to work with you and you want them to provide excellent service consistently so that you can provide excellent service to your customers in the same way. So when we look at what the customer values, we have to think firstly perhaps of reputation, but we also think of a whole list of attributes that the customer will be focused on, such as price, quality, time, design, durability, not just design, but engineering, if it's if it's an engineering product and so on and so forth. But there are those customer values placed on, on those attributes, and those are called product and service attributes. And underpinning that is this intangible asset of the service provided by the supplier so service in use when you test them that's very important to understand that there is this concept of service and then there's the idea of this relationship that we've talked about and that relates also to the brand and image reputation so customer focused supply chains are built on what the customers actually value now in this final part of dealing with market driven customer focused supply chains In this podcast, I want to refer to demand-driven supply chain systems and just talk a little bit about a demand-driven system. This takes us full circle from supply push to demand-driven supply. So it's the customer driving this. So demand signals come into supplier organizations from different market channels. And we can think about it in very simple terms. In a retail store, for example, a customer walks into a physical space, browsers, may select a couple of, say, clothing items. They try them on. And when they come out of the dressing room in the store, they'll look at themselves in a mirror and they'll decide whether to keep one or two of the items that they've tried on or to put them back on the shelves for somebody else for later. So that's the decision-making process that takes place in a physical store. In an online environment, the same browsing activity takes place, 
but it's online. They'd look at the website store and make that sort of decision. And you might try, if it's a clothing item, there might be an opportunity to try the clothing item on with an avatar built to your particular measurements. In some of these systems, you can even put your own photographs of your own body into into the avatar so that you've got the, the shape. Uh, this technology is getting better all the time, so it's it's very much easier to do these days. And you make a selection and you purchase an item when you're ready. When you receive the order, which usually is delivered by a white van or a, a company such as DHL or you know one of the home delivery companies, you'll try the item on at home. And there's a second decision point then for lots of people. They'll then decide whether what they saw online actually measures up when they put these items on at home. And they'll decide whether to keep or return. And one of the biggest problems for demand-driven supply chains, which are online, these digital supply chains is the high rate of returns. A physical store might experience somewhere between 5 and 15% on a on a return with particular lines. But an online retailer probably will be experiencing returns at the level of between 20 to 50%. It will certainly be much higher. So it's probably at least double or treble what you're likely to see in a physical store. And this can be a major cost for some. Online channels include mobile internet as well as web access using your laptop computer, a tablet and various other devices including mobile devices, usually a phone or a tablet. And the better demand-driven supply chains use cloud services to manage the process from the customer. So from order through to picking, packing, dispatch delivery and payment and those cloud services make browsing for customers much smoother much faster payments easy and it's safe for the customer to perform the transaction for suppliers it means they can access top quality software it's usually very efficient it's comparatively safer than other systems and you can buy the best software and the best technology and put it together, integrate it with your own supply system. And one example of that might be the uh, use of Amazon Web Services. You often see a little three-letter icon when this is referred to as AWS, A-W-S. And that technology is used by many organizations and many people who retail goods over the internet. And this might also include government departments where they deliver services or goods to people using those Amazon Web Services because the technology is very powerful. It allows customers to pay with their Amazon account rather than set up a separate account or a payment system with each individual retailer that they want to deal with. So Amazon has dominated that part of the technology in, in many ways for retail services. And they sell those services on to all sorts of different organizations. But without that cloud technology, these demand-driven supply chain systems would be much more difficult to manage. But Amazon is not the only provider. There's all sorts of uh, technology companies in this space. And so there are lots of lots of organizations you can look at to decide which services you want to purchase to run your supply chain. <music> 
So there we have it. All you want to know about market-driven and customer-focused supply chains for the time being. And don't forget to have a look at my blog, Tony Hines Blog, where I have articles on the topics discussed in the podcast. And if you like those articles, please give a like and pass them on to friends or people interested in the topic. And perhaps there are students you know who are studying supply chain subjects who also may be keen to listen or read the blog. So that's it for now. See you next time. You've been listening to Chain Reaction, all about supply chain advantage, written and presented by Tony Hines. (laughs) 